we have been stretching out this sermon series on victorious living for a good reason. We're supposed to live victoriously every day. Isn't that right? Amen. Uh, if, you, if you have a Bible, I'd invite you, just before we pray, to turn with me to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 3. And uh, this morning I'm going to be reading uh, verses 5 through 11, which is the passage we'll be speaking from. Please hear God's word. Colossians chapter 3, beginning at verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, or your members that are earthly. There's a um, variant reading, therefore, your members that are on the earth. But put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old man with its practices and have put on the new man which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all, or all in all, Christ. Let us turn to God in prayer. Our Father, in Jesus' name, we come and we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for Jesus Christ who is with us always, even until the end of the age. Father, we're thankful for uh, the preaching of the gospel and we pray that that's what would happen today. Father, help me with my weakness and uh, unworthiness and wickedness. We pray that your spirit would fill me and give me the mind of Christ and Take charge of my tongue and speak through me. Make your appeal, Father, through me to the hearts of your people. Father, we pray for those who here listen. We pray that you give us all ears to hear what your Spirit says in and by the Scripture. Father, fill us all with your Spirit. Grant us the, the transformation that you promise in your Word inasmuch as we behold Christ in his beauty and in his wonder. Father, we pray today that we leave this place repenting. We leave this place believing. We leave this place filled with the joy that only you, the Lord, can give us. We ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Resurrected living on earth. Uh, we're dealing with the second point. Since we will appear with Christ in glory, let us put to death unheavenly members. It was December 7th, 1941. 7.53 a.m. and then 8.55 a.m. Many people in active duty lost their lives in the attack on Pearl Harbor. 
Planes came rushing in, destroying ships, destroying lives. This weekend, there are many, many services remembering those who, as it is so often said, gave the ultimate sacrifice so that people like you and I could live in peace, could live in harmony and security. It was a couple thousand years ago on a, on a hill where one person gave up his life preeminently in the ultimate sacrifice as he was crucified in active service to his father and for his enemies that we might become his friends and family. We come on Sunday to remember, as we, Lord willing, soon will, uh, a death, Jesus Christ, his death on the cross for sinners, for enemies, for rebels, for the perverted, that we might have peace with God, experience the peace of God and peace with one another, that we might have shalom, we might have wholeness, we might be made complete in and because of him. In this passage, we, we see how we're called to put to death, literally, uh, our earthly members. We're supposed to put them to death. We're supposed to not remember them as we did when we lived in them. You know, oftentimes around this time of year, people go to many um, cemeteries laying flowers on grave sites, people who've given the ultimate sacrifice for the country and for the security of the country. This passage calls us never to visit that grave where our earthly members were put away by Jesus Christ. You know, it was Dr. Frankenstein who went to a graveyard. You remember the story? It's fiction, of course, but he went and got a dead body and shot it with some electricity, and he's alive, he's alive, you know. Um, when Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, he died to put them away, to bury them. And it behooves us not to go back to that cemetery trying to dig them up, trying to find whether or not they still can live again. We're called to put these things to death. But this, this calling to put to death uh, what is earthly in us, our members that are earthly, comes in a context, as you know. It comes in a context that begins in verse 1 and actually begins further than this, but, but it comes in a context where we are, we are told that we have been raised with Jesus Christ. And what that means, if you look over chapter 2, uh, verse 12 and 13, it says, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. What does it mean to be raised with Christ? It means to be vindicated. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he was vindicated. That was God's stamp of absolute approval 
that this my son has done exactly what I have said for him to do. And we have been raised with him. We also have been forgiven. We've been justified. We have been forgiven all of our sins. God looks at us just as if we've never sinned and just as if we're as sinless and obedient as Jesus is. We have been forgiven. We have been free from accusations, free from condemnation. We've been set free. It means also, as it says in the the sister texts to Colossians and Ephesians chapter 2, it means that we have been uh, dead to sin. To be raised with Christ means that we're dead to sin. We obediently follow Jesus Christ, aiming in all things to please Him. That the compass in our life has been redirected. We're objects of mercy. We're not objects of wrath anymore. We have been saved by God's grace. We have been newly created by God for the good works God prepared for us to do in advance. We've been raised with Christ. Not only that, but we we find in the context of being called to put to death certain behavior, we're called to seek things above. And we talked a little bit last time when we looked at this passage, what those things are. They can be summed up as seeking authority. Jesus Christ says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Go make disciples. You have authority in the name of Jesus Christ to follow after Jesus Christ. Not only authority, but assurance. Christ Jesus died more than that. He was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who also was interceding for us. Who's going to separate us from the love of God and love of Christ? You and I have assurance Jesus ever lives to intercede for us. We have an advocate that sits on high. It's important to review these sort of things as we look at this call to put things to death so that we don't look at this passage of mortifying our members as some kind of legalistic, pharisaic way of doing Christian life. But this call to put things to death in our life comes in the context of being raised being redirected in our seeking. Seek things above, what does that mean? It means you have access. You've got aid. You've got divine aid. Jesus Christ comes to your rescue in the midst of temptation. It says so in Hebrews 2.18. He comes to your rescue when you are tempted. Not only that, but you, you have access. You can come to Him. Seeing then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, we can come boldly to the throne of grace. We have a high priest who can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He's been tempted in every way just as we have been yet without sin. And so the door is wide open. We can come boldly. We can receive grace. We can receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. When we're called to put things to death in our life, we're called to deal with the temptations that come every single day to live a certain way. And you and I have to know that we've got access, we've got divine aid, we've got an open door policy with God. where We can receive grace, we can receive mercy. We're not alone in this battle with the flesh, with our earthly members. I'm so glad that God didn't just zap us and say, good luck, see you in a little while. But he said, I'm with you always. You can come and talk to me anytime about anything. Not only that, but seeking things above is seeking adoration. Remember Revelation chapter 4 and 5? They are worshiping the Lamb. 
because he is the creator and he is the redeemer. He was slain so that every single tongue, every language, every tribe and wherever you're from, you can come and worship him. You can, seeking, seeking to adore the one who has opened up heaven's door for us. Seeking things above. Not only that, but setting your mind on things above. Setting your mind on things above. Look over at Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. It says there, And you who once were, were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Those things go together. If you are alienated from God, hostile in your mind against God, by definition, you will do evil deeds. But when your mind has been reset, when you have been given your mind a new setting on things above, you have at that point the wherewithal, the gateway to doing righteous deeds. Those things go together. Mental your mentality is married to your morality. That'll preach. The things that are above are uh, the mind and character of Christ. We will, Lord willing, look at those things next week, the things above. You see those things delineated in chapter 3, verse 12 through 17, the things above. But we are not to put our mind on earthly things, it says, the things we're going to look at today, Lord willing, which can be summed up in verse 5 and verse 8, as 8 and 9, as sexual sins and social sins. Sexual sins and social sins. They're the things that, that Paul focuses on. It's not the whole category of things that we should be putting to death, but this is his focus and fixation when he thinks about us being raised with Jesus Christ. And rightly so. And this passage that we're looking at this morning is contrasted with, if you look at Colossians 2, verse 23, there it says, uh, these have indeed this, this uh, a religious outward form of, of Pharisaic, legalistic, external religious practices conforming to what you know should be right. Uh, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom, in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But here it is, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They have no value, the outward, external conformity to traditions of man, religion, whatever it might be. It has no value in arresting the indulgence in the flesh. What is the flesh? It's autonomous thinking and living. It's, it's a mindset that is totally opposed to God being God. It's the mindset that was embraced in the garden when, 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 when Satan said to our parents, uh, you will be like God. And God Himself said, now the man and the woman have become like one of us in knowing good and evil. We talked about it before. What does it mean? To become like God in knowing good and evil, it means that you have no authority other than yourself. You have no one that you're held accountable to, that you are your own God. You make up your own rules, you do whatever you want to do. It's absolute autonomy. It's self-governing. 
outward form, religion, Pharisaism, has no power, no value in stopping the indulgence in the flesh. The motivation for, for pursuing uh, this particular mental setting that will keep us and give us value in stopping indulgence in the flesh, flesh is fourfold. Uh, first, this is just by way of review. Um, I don't think we're going to go long, trust me, but uh, uh, just bear with me. Uh, this is God's word, you know. If I drop dead today and, and meet God and he says, well, Brian, why did you speed through the message or why did you cut it short? What am I going to say? How's that going to go down? Not too well. You know, we can sit in front of a TV and watch football, right? Baseball, basketball for hours. We want it to go in overtime because we got extra popcorn. We got extra beer. We got extra pretzels. We want to see these guys fight to the end. How many people were upset when Mike Tyson just knocked people out in 30 seconds? All the money they paid, 30 seconds, it's over. Come on, man, take it 15 rounds. Give me my money's worth. I got a big gulp here and a, and a bucket. Come on, man. 30 seconds, you're out the door. But then when it comes to God and to the Word of God and the one who created you, the, the one who died for you, it's like, come on, man, hurry up. We got 20 minutes. No, folks, that's not the way it goes down, man. Come on now. Repent, folks. You got to get this thing back on track. You know what I mean? I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to keep you here all night. Trust me, baby. I got things to do just like you got things to do. But I actually, I, believe it or not, you know, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, Proverbs 12, 22. Someone actually told me when I left the church one day, the sermon is too short. Imagine that. I'm serious. So you're going to get it today. No, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just joking. Okay, refocus. The motivation for pursuing a particular mindset, a mental setting that does have value in keeping us from indulging the flesh is fourfold. First, you have died. You have died to the outward religious conformity that is void of internal spiritual transformation and renewal. You've died to, to having a form of godliness but no power to be godly. You died to that. You died to being dead in trespasses and sins. As it says in the uncircumcision of your flesh. You died to autonomy. Self-government. You died to that. And therefore, you have died to being hostile to God and unsubmissive to His laws, as it says in Romans chapter 8. Second, uh, not only have you died, but your life is hidden with Christ in God, as it says in chapter 3. Christ lives in you, and your new life is a life of faith fixated on the one who loved you and gave himself up for you. The Spirit of God shows you Jesus' gracious love and gracious sacrifice for you. Uh, you. Your life is hidden with Christ. Third, uh, Christ is your life. Christ is your life. Through Him we know God as Father. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through Him. 
You cannot have that access into God's presence, into the Father's presence, into the Father's resources apart from Jesus. Your life is in Him. Not only that, but Paul said, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Your life is in Christ. Christ is your life. And the life that Paul was talking about for to me to live as Christ is a life of humble service for the purposes of God. That, that new life has been given to you. And fourth, you will appear with Christ in glory. You will appear with Christ in glory. Uh, the Bible says in the book of Philippians chapter 3, uh, the book of Philippians chapter 3 verse 20, and 21, uh, it says, uh, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Uh, the Bible says that when, when Christ appears, uh, beloved, what kind of love is this that the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God, and that is what we are. And what we shall be has not yet been revealed, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope purifies himself, even as Jesus is pure. There's something purifying uh, in your heart about thinking about the hope you have that is certain, thinking about Christ Jesus coming back again. Um, you will appear with him in glory. And so in light of these things, these things that have value, in helping us uh, not indulge the flesh, uh, since we will appear with Christ in glory, let us put to death unheavenly members. Put to death, therefore, your members that are on the earth. Put them to death. They've been buried. They've been put away by Jesus Christ. Remember again, Dr. Frankenstein, don't go back to the tomb, digging up the dead body, trying to get it to live again. I notice sometimes the old man has a serious case of rigor mortis. But don't let him bring you down. This, this putting to death can only be done uh, by the Spirit. By the Spirit of God. It says so in Romans chapter 8, uh, verse, verse 13. It says, for if you are, are living in the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit... You put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Only the Spirit of God. And what does the Spirit of God come to do? The Spirit of God comes to glorify Jesus Christ to you. So the Spirit of God does not come to testify about Himself. He comes to testify about Jesus. He comes to tell you about Jesus. He comes to tell you about the Gospel and the beauty and the glory of Christ. This putting to death can only be done by being a praying son. By being a praying son. It says so again in Romans 8, 15 and 16. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. By whom we cry, Abba, Father. There is something, there is something empowering about the access you have to live a godly life being able to pray, being able to come to God as Father and say, Abba, Father, Daddy, Papa. And when you do, God comes through for you. 
It's done by the Spirit. It's done by being a praying son. It's done by being a persuaded son. Romans 8.16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You know, it's one thing not to know your father and then to meet him 20, 30, 40 years later. The trust is not there yet because you've never known him. But there's something about the Spirit of God in you bearing witness with you that you are a child of God. That he is your father, you are his son, you are, and, don't, and daughters don't feel left out. This, is, this language of sonship is, is rooted in, in the culture and, and the background of a son being an heir. A son being an heir of God. A son owning the whole estate. So, so, so daughters are included in that. It's just saying that the son, Jesus Christ, has, has, has resources because he's the ultimate son of God. And he calls you son because you are a fellow heir with Jesus Christ. And so his resources are now your resources. So he puts, he lifts, if anything, Christianity lifts women up and says you've got just as many rights and just as many uh, heirship as, as a son would. You're in the same place. Amen. And, and not only that, but not only being a, a praying son and being a persuaded son, but being a pitied, pitied son. Sometimes people say, don't give me your pity. You ought to want God's pity. You ought to want to be pitied by God. Because mercy suits your case, as the old folks used to say. Look at Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He does it according to the will of God. The Spirit of God helps us. We need help. I don't know about you, but every once in a while, every once in a while, I go to God in prayer, and I start my prayer with God. I don't know what to say. <laughs> but I thank you for the Holy Spirit who already started interceding before I realized I needed prayer to begin with. And these are the things, that these are the factors that are behind this call to put to death. This is a spiritual work. And, and, and notice, how, notice how Paul names these things. These sins have names. They fall into categories of sexual and social sins. The first category, sexual sins, actually is, is listed. These things are connected to one another. And in verse 5, the end of verse 5, all of it is called idolatry. Idolatry means that you treat someone or something or some idea like it's God. Uh, you worship someone, you worship something, you worship some idea, some thought, as if it was God. You give that desire and that devotion for it as if it were God Himself. Putting, putting sex here is the one that's targeted in the place of God. And, and, and it points to... Uh, Either, either some, some, some deviant form of sex or misplaced sex is idolized or coveted. And you go back up through the list. This leads to an evil desire for what has been prohibited by God. And this evil desire becomes an out-of-control, all-consuming fixation, a passion. A passion. And this, in turn, contaminates a person's heart and leads them to any and every biblically prohibited sexual attitude and action that runs counter to what God has originally established. 
impurity. And everything at that point becomes permissible. Sexual immorality. You know, sometimes today folks say, well, you know, Jesus never talked about homosexuality and never talked about this and that. And, you know, that's just a, that's a comment born of ignorance. Because that comment of Jesus, porneia is the Greek word, it includes every single possible category of sexual sin that is opposed to God's original design with one man and one woman who are married to one another. Everything's in that boat. You can re, you can re, Jesus didn't have to say anything. It's already written in Leviticus 18. Amen. It got all kinds of deviant behavior listed in, in Leviticus 18. You can check it out. It's there. It's been written there for thousands of years. And so when Jesus came on the scene as a Jewish rabbi speaking to a Jewish audience and said, don't be porneia, don't be sexually immoral, all folk knew that's exactly what he was talking about. He didn't need to spell things out. So don't let that argument catch you off guard. Show me a place where Jesus said something about homosexuality. I'll show you right in Leviticus 18. And I'll show you another passage in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 and 11, that says every prophet in the Old Testament was actually speaking the word of Christ. So the scripture is consistent within itself, baby. You got it going on when you got the word of God. You know what I mean? You ain't got to worry about the naysayers. And the players. Amen. You can tell them just like it is. In a loving way. In a gentle heart. But with a firm spirit. That does not depart. From what we know to be true. Everything is not permissible. Everybody today will tell you anything and everything is permissible. But everything is not permissible. Because sexual behavior, just like any behavior, is meant to reflect the image of God. That's what makes homosexuality wrong. That's what makes lesbianism wrong. That's what makes all the other deviant forms wrong because they don't reflect the character of Jesus. You've been created in the image of God. Not just part of you created in the image of God. Every single part of you created in the image of God. Every single behavior is supposed to reflect the image of God. Jesus is the image of God. Jesus is a bridegroom. He's got one bride. Come on, somebody. And so, so if it doesn't reflect that standard, it's wrong. Two men together. You know what that's a reflection of? It's a reflection of Jesus who will not give up his life for a bride. Two women together. It's, it's a reflection of a church that simply will not submit to her Lord. Self-sex, solo sex, it's a reflection of a Christ who's all into himself, who will not think about other people ahead of himself. When you put Jesus in the center of this thing, all that stuff begins to get screwy. You know what I'm saying? I'm not mean that. I know there's no pun intended. But it really gets messed up. I'm going to have to forgive, forgive me for, you know, you're going to have to scratch that. But anyway, it doesn't make no difference. You know what I'm talking about. But, but, but when, you, when you look at Christ as the image of God, and you're created in the image of God, and everything about you is supposed to reflect Jesus Christ, and if Jesus' own marriage is between one woman, the church, and he's one man, the bridegroom, then that already sets the standard of every single sexual behavior out there. 
It puts everything to sleep except the one man married to the one woman. You are creating the image of God. It says so in Colossians 1, 15 and 16. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Sex is for Jesus. He made it. He invented it. It was his idea. Therefore, whether it is sex or whatever it might be, if it distorts the image of Jesus that's supposed to be reflected in your life, if it distorts his likeness that's supposed to be what we're conformed to, it means that we're not enjoying and glorifying our creator. We sometimes make light of sexual sins, but God doesn't. God is angry. He's angry. He's mad about it. That's what it says right here. On account of these things, verse 6, the wrath of God is coming. God is full of wrath. He's full of wrath because he sees his image being distorted. He sees his character being distorted in deviant sexual forms. God's wrath is real. God's wrath is rational. God's wrath is righteous. You know, imagine, imagine if you went to work one day and you, you had a child at home, you know, somebody that could answer the phone and call you, and um, your child came home, had a key, got in the house, and somebody was in your house, sitting there, changing the furniture around, moving stuff around, putting stuff in different places. You never met the person. You don't know who they are. You call your dad on the phone and say, hey, you know, somebody's here. Who's here? I don't know. I don't know him. But he's, I told him this is your house, and he says, I don't care. I don't acknowledge your father. Now, if that happened to you, I don't think you would say, okay, I'll take care of it when I get back home. No. You would talk to your boss and say, look, I need to go somewhere. Something's going on. Something's going on in my house. I got, you know, this, this universe, this is God's house. You know, when, when Moses came down to Egypt and said, thus says the Lord, let my people go, and, and, and Pharaoh said, I don't acknowledge the Lord. I'm the Lord here. And, and God heard it and said, what, 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 what? Who made Egypt? That's my house. You might think it's your house, but that's my house. And see, when you, when you mess with, with God's house, you know, now, God came the first time, right? He came, Jesus came. He came to his house. And he came and died for the stuff we were doing in this house that we had no business doing in this house. But he's coming again. And he ain't coming to die for nobody. He's coming to straighten the house out. You know, and so, you know, this home invasion sort of thing where people think, well, they can do whatever they want to do in, in this world. This is God's world. This is my father's world. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Every square inch, like the, like the, like the, the theologian said, every square inch of the planet, of the universe, Jesus says, this is mine. The, the Bible says, so Psalm chapter 2, I will give you the, the, the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. When Jesus got out of the grave, God said, it's yours. Everything's yours. Everything was his anyway. But now in his humanity, everything is yours. It all belongs to Jesus, and so it's his house. He makes the rules. Don't you make the rules in your house? I make the rules in my house. It's not even my house. I rent the property, but I'm living there. So I make the rules. You make the rules in your house, right? 
wish I had somebody in here who made rules in their own house. Come on, somebody. And this is God's house. God makes the rules in his house. You know, the quicker you say amen, the faster I'm going to get through this thing. I'm just because I just got to know that you're with me. Sorry, that's a manipulative thing. Forgive me for that. But this is God's house. How out of place it is to be a target of God's wrath when you have been raised with Christ. When you have died with Christ, when you have been hidden with Christ, when you're going to appear with Christ in glory, how out of place it is to make yourself a target of God's wrath. That's why he says the wrath of God is coming against this sort of behavior. Stay away from it. Put it to death. Kill it. Reckon it dead by putting your mind on things above. The second category uh, talked about is, is that's to be buried. It says put also these things away from you. Bury these things are social sins. Often these sins are embraced because there's something in them that seeks control. Control of other people. Anger, wrath, malice. Why do you get angry? Anger points to a short fuse, a short temper, out of control because things don't happen the way you expect it, the way you want it. People are not doing the things you want them to do. You get angry as if that's going to change anything. It's not going to do anything but change your blood pressure. Um, anger. Not only that, but um, wrath, a desire for retribution, revenge, to hurt those who disagree or dislike you or have done something to you. Wrath. Wrath is God. Vengeance is mine, God says. I will repay. And so anger and wrath have to do with distrusting God. Not being able to let things go and put them in his hands and trust him and pray to him. We take place of God. We want to pay people back. Malice is a mean spirit. Just, just plain old evil. I want to hurt somebody. And I take joy in seeing other people's pain. That's malice. God says, put this stuff away. And, and it's interesting how Paul says these things to Christian people. You would think, why do you need to even talk like this to Christian people? Well, I mean, you know, sometimes you get up late, you get, go to work, and somebody screams at you, yells at you, gets in your way, and then stuff starts coming out of your heart and out of your mouth that you wouldn't expect to be coming out of the mouth of a Christian. And so that's why Paul says these things to us, because we, he knows we need it. We have uh, the old man who has a serious case of rigor mortis. Um, slander, blasphemy, character assassination. The direct opposite of eulogizing someone. You go to a funeral, you speak well of people. Sometimes even if they didn't live a good life, you speak well of the dead. But, but the point is here that we are not to slander. Whether it's false, slander throws mud on another person's character, another person's life, seeking to destroy them. Obscene talk is speech void of God's filter and even cultural filters, speaking everything out of turn. Um, the Bible says to put these things away. And in and, and verse 9 it says, do not lie to one another. Lying is satanic. It's Satan's mother tongue. How inappropriate it is for a believer to lie like Satan lies. That's the only way Satan speaks is lying. We're to put these things off. And the imagery here is like putting off clothing. If you're a pig farmer, I don't know how many people here have been on a farm, but pigs stink. They're messy. They're dirty. I don't, you don't need to be on a farm to know that. Pigs are dirty animals. And if you've been working with pigs all day, I used to work with pigs one time, I mean, uh, they really smell. And, and the stench gets stuck to your clothing, stuck to your skin. It gets stuck in your hair. You smell like a pig. You do. Not you. I mean, I'm talking about, you know, I'm getting an illustration here. 
But, but you know, when, when you work on a pig farm like that or, or anything, you know, that's dirty, you stink. People get away from you. They stop, they, you, you got an odor. And then when you take those garments off and put them aside and go to the shower and get yourself washed and squeaky clean and just smelling so wonderful, how crazy it is at that point to come get the same clothes and put them back on. That's crass madness. And that's what it says when, 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 when lying and all this obscene talk, it says put that stuff off like a dirty garment. And, and because you put on a new man. You put on Jesus Christ. You put on Jesus Christ, and his, his aroma is like a sweet flavor, sweet smell to God. You know, remember Elvis Presley? He used to sing. I don't, you know, I don't, it doesn't make a difference what you think about him. The man was, he was a rocker, man, and he would take his, at the, he'd take his jacket sometimes and throw it out in the audience, people, and it'd be full of sweat, you know? And people would just put that thing on. They didn't care. It's Elvis' jacket. Come on. You think about Jesus. He hung up on that cross, bloody, bruising. But the Bible says, put him on. Put him on his death to sin and put on his righteous robes. Put him on. You're clothed with Jesus Christ, his character. That woman who had a blood flow, she just said, let me just touch his garment. He'll make me well. The new man is being renewed, it says, in the knowledge of a gospel-filled character of God. The knowledge of God. The knowledge of God is the gospel. The Bible says that in view of the mercies of God, I beseech you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, as our reasonable act of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind, proving what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It says we are being renewed after the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. God is making us like Jesus inasmuch as we behold his beauty. And this image, this image, verse, verse, verse 11, it talks about here uh, uh, there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, a barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Or, or another, another way of looking at that is, is, is all in all is Christ. You know, we can, we can look at our, whether it's our race, whether it's our color, whether it's our ethnicity, whether it's our language, whether it's the tribe we're from or wherever we might be, and we can look at that as a way of dividing us, and it's not meant to ever divide us. It's meant to show the, the beauty and diversity that's in God, in Christ Jesus himself. And when we focus on Jesus, when we focus on Christ Jesus, those differences become just like jewelry, shining. It's never meant to divide. It's meant to show the depth and the robustness of the beauty of Jesus Christ. But sometimes we try to use it as a way of dividing. Well, this is the way we do. Or this is the way, it, it, when, when, when the way you do has, has, has created a barrier between the body of Christ, we need, to, we need to reassess and critique what we do. Because it's supposed to be we're one in Jesus Christ. Christ has brought us together. Christ is honored is meant to be honored in our body, whether by life or by death, no matter what your hue, your ethnicity, your class, your gender, your language, your tribe might be. Christ is all and in all. Christ is behind our being human beings. He's the one who's created us in his image, and he is inside of us. All of us, no matter where you're from, are in the image of God equally. 
No particular race of people or ethnic group or gender is more in the image of God. That was one of the radical things stated about women in the, New, in the Old Testament is that Eve was just as much in the image of God as Adam was in the image of God. Gender, race, color, everybody's equally in the image of God. And in the Christian life, Jesus is equally inside of every single person. And so the, 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 the playing field is leveled at the cross, baby. You know what I mean? And so everybody's equal. Now, you may not feel that, but hey, progress is a process. But until we own it mentally and, and live it out behaviorally, we'll never see it in reality. We've got to live that thing. We've got to own it. We've got to recognize that every single person who names the name of Jesus Christ is a brother, is a sister, is equal standing before God. Uh, so so let, us, let us think about these things uh, as, we, um, as, we, as we close this passage that Christ is all. Christ is the one that we must fixate on. He is the one our minds must be wrapped up with. He's the one that we must seek. He's the one that we must remember that we're created in his image. Why are, why are certain behaviors wrong sexually? Why are certain behaviors wrong socially? It's because they distort the image of Jesus Christ being reflected through us. This is about Christ. It's about Jesus. You know, back in the day, in the, you know, when Pharaoh put them monuments around Egypt, because culturally, that's how you uh, uh, said, this is mine. You put your image a thousand miles away. That meant that from that point to where you were sitting was yours. And when people came to your country and saw your image, they said, oh, this is Pharaoh's land. You're in the image of God. You're all over the planet. What does that communicate about God? It communicates that he owns every single thing because you're in his image. And whenever you see the face of another human being, it should remind us that this is God's land. And Jesus Christ is the image of God. And that person's got potential, equal potential, not only to reflect the image of God, but to be filled with Jesus Christ himself. And so we, we need to own that. We need to pray. Let's pray and get ourselves on the way. Thank you for bearing with this word of exhortation. I appreciate your patience and love. Um, I know most of you are off on Monday, so you know you, we can still got, you still got a weekend, right? <laughs> still got Monday, right? Amen. Let, let's, let's confess together uh, to the Lord uh, our sins as we think about what we've heard. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, have mercy upon us and hear our prayer for the sake of your name and the glory of your kingdom. We confess that we need your spirit to teach us your ways and to grieve over the sin inside and outside of us. Would you open our eyes and humble our hearts over the immense privilege of being called children of God. Renew us, Lord. Manifest through us the life of your Son, Jesus, as we look to you for peace that passes understanding, peace that guards our hearts and minds, and peace that relieves us from trouble. In the name of Jesus Christ, who dwells with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever. Amen.